So on a scale of, uh, of one to 10, uh, how, how well do you pay attention? How's, how's your attention span? Uh, one, let me, just, let me just categorize this so you can give it a proper number to yourself. One would be uh, you're watching TV in your, in, at home and someone could come in and rob your entire house and you wouldn't notice. That's a one. You may, you may know people like that. Ten is like you're the next Sherlock Holmes. You don't miss anything. So how do you, go ahead, in your mind, how would you give, your, give yourself a number? And then subtract three from that, probably. Because we all think that we pay better attention. Or just ask your spouse or significant other, the people you work with or live with. We all think we pay better attention than we actually do. Uh, there's an article I had our staff uh, read uh, by a guy named Philip Johnston, uh, uh, Love in the Age of Information, I think it was called. And it was just really fascinating. He talks about uh, that it, our attention is some of the most valuable things we possess. He says we live in an attention economy and that everybody's trying to grab our attention and commodify it. Do you know that this is going on? Back in the day, it was like newspapers. Like that was kind of low, you know, that's kind of what newspapers did. Now it's like on steroids. So now it's Facebook and Google and whatever else. Every time we're online, people are trying to grab your attention because they've realized they get your attention, that means money for them. So they've hired psychologists and people that are really good at this. Like, how do we grab people's attention with sounds and with pictures and with images and creating games they have to keep coming back to again and again and again? Because if we get their attention, we get them and we can make money off of it. This is just what's going on. I think we all know this is going on. But our attention is valuable not just because of marketers and people trying to commodify it. It's valuable because we know this inherently in our relationships. That when someone pays attention to us, we're loved. There's a vital connection between attention and love. And yet never have we had less attention to spend. We, we call it paying attention. We've never had less to spend. A massive uh, Microsoft study has shown that from the year 2000 to present, our attention span has dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. Neither is impressive, but it's a pretty big drop. Now, there's a famous study that said that goldfish can pay attention for eight seconds. This is our goldfish, Ziggy. And you could have a more prolonged conversation with Ziggy than another human. That's what the studies are showing. <laughs> Thank goodness our Lord, Jesus, was a master at paying attention. And as we sit at Jesus' feet in yet another story, we're going to learn from the master how to pay attention today. We're in a, the Gospel of Luke. We're calling our series The Great Reversal because in Luke, Jesus is constantly turning things inside out and upside down. And if we will allow him, he'll turn us inside out and upside down. We will be changed if we'll enter into these stories and enter into these texts. And I pray that that is true for us in this gathering this morning, uh, that God will literally grab our attention and transform it. So I'm going to pray uh, over our scripture reading and then... Uh, my friend Andrea is going to come up and read, and she'll finish and say, this is the word of the Lord, and then you'll say? It's, it's better, you know, it's better. Uh, Father, thanks uh, for your faithfulness to us. Thanks for your word. Your word is not my word. It's not anybody else's word. There's such a huge gap. I say all kind of crazy, foolish, silly things. Your word's powerful, and it's transformative, and we invite it into our bodies and our hearts and our minds. And we pray that we would not encounter your word today and not be transformed. 
So Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Um, Make us more like the people you created us to be this morning. All for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is in Luke 8, 40 to 48. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman, who, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus said. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, and I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so if you have your Bibles, and I see some of you have been bringing them, and no shame if you haven't, but I encourage you to uh, go ahead and get it out, because we'll, uh, what we're looking at today, we're in Luke 8, and Andrew just read verses 40 through 48, but the story goes longer. It's actually two stories that are interwoven together, and this was an ancient rhetorical device, putting a story within a story. So the author, and the same uh, interwoven stories in Matthew and Mark as well. So why are they interweaving them together? We'll get to that. But we've started the story, and then we're going to come back, and I'll read a little more. So we'll be bouncing around Luke 8. So this is a fascinating story, so I want you following along. If you have your phone or whatever, go ahead and get it out. You can get the Bible up on theirs, too. Um, so this, this is, this is where we're, we're told that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. That's the phrase that Luke uses. And so this is the, what I call the rock star stage of Jesus' ministry. This is early on when he's healing and he's teaching provocatively, and people are like, is he the one? And there's just crowds around him everywhere he goes. So Luke wants us to know that because we have to sit in the scene. I want you to feel it and experience it. Uh, We're introduced to the first main character, and this is Jairus. We're told Jairus is a synagogue leader. We can look at the verbiage that Matthew and Mark uses, and we can can determine he was an elder in a synagogue. So synagogue, each of the small towns, we're probably in Capernaum. And so we're probably in the synagogue there. And so uh, I think there'll be a picture of the synagogue in Capernaum that's coming up, so I want you to kind of visualize this. This, this is likely where the scene happened. They found the first century floor to the synagogue, which is fascinating, archaeologists. So we're there, and Jairus is a synagogue leader or an elder. He probably was a worship leader. He probably arranged the order of the synagogue gatherings, and the synagogue was like the local church for the Jewish people. But more than that, it was the center of the community. So uh, everything then was, you know, if you were a religious leader, you were a civic leader, and you did everything. So what Luke wants us to know is Jairus is a powerful man. Everyone knew him. He was like the guy in the city. I think also the gospel writers put names in the text like this because they're written, you know, depending on the gospel, a couple decades after the events. I think they're putting them in there because a lot of these characters are still alive. 
And they're like, the story I'm about to tell you, Luke's telling us, is crazy. It's wild what happens. If you don't believe me, go ask Jairus. You know him. Go find him. So uh, we have Jairus. We have the scene. We're in the, the synagogue, Capernaum. And then we're told uh, Jairus, this powerful man, and this was a culture of honor and shame, different. We're like a guilt culture. They were honor-shame culture. So powerful men just always carried themselves, never ran. They were always just in control and under well, here we go. The original readers know this, and Jairus falls at Jesus' feet in the dust, in the dirt, this ragamuffin rabbi. And the original readers and the people there on the scene, no doubt, would have just been like, what's happening? Why was Jairus kneeling to anyone? Well, the reason Luke tells us his 12-year-old daughter is on the brink of death. So at 12, she was likely already betrothed. She had a kind of fiancé waiting, and her whole life in her. Something's happened to her. And all those dreams are about to go up in smoke. And her dad, and we're told that, that it's his only daughter. So his dad's desperate, has tried everything, and is, is on his knees in front of Jesus because there's a desperation. So Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus sees that faith and says, let's go make things right. That's what Jesus does, righteousness. He makes things right. Let's go take care of that situation. I see your faith. So off we go. Are you with me? Are you visualizing? This is important. You're vis- so here's the crowd. Off we go. And we're told, Luke tells us, the crowds almost crush Jesus. This Greek word also means to choke. So the, the cities back then were very small. The streets were dirty and dusty and tight. And so we've got a a massive throng of people, like a mob of people together, and they're almost choking Jesus. They're so tight around him. And there's a mob not bent on destruction. They're bent on seeing what this man can do. Can he do something? So, again, to feel, to get into the story a little bit, and we, most of us, COVID, we haven't been experiencing this at all, so we got to kind of remember a little bit. But have you ever been in in an elevator that's been really packed? Anybody? Elevator that's really packed. You're, you're squeezed like this, right? Or uh, have you ever been to a sporting event where there's a massive crowd and maybe you rush the field or the court? Anybody? I totally have. And it's kind of like, whoo, it's exciting, but also scary because the whole group is moving together and you're like, is this going to be okay? Mosh pit, anybody? Any mosh pit people? Oh, in the back. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, of course, a lot of us, right, are concerts. It's this kind of thing happening. We know this. We're getting jostled around, and people are touching us, and, and that kind of thing is going on. And the, the whole group is rolling. So that's the, we got to get the scene to understand how dramatic the next thing is. So they're rolling. They're heading towards Jairus' daughter. She's on the brink of death, and a new character enters the story. We don't have her name. And Luke tells us that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know the condition, probably some sort of uterine hemorrhage. But if you're in the Jewish culture, uh, to hear blood and bleeding and an ailment like this, you immediately think unclean. That's what they would have thought. This woman was perpetually unclean, which meant she was uh, cut off from everything. Cut off from the synagogue, cut off from cultural circles, cut off from family, cut off from a job. She was just cut off. She was ostracized. She was marginalized. Everybody would have known who she was. So here, this is great storytelling because we have the juxtaposition of the characters, the tension in the characters. We have two main characters. You have the male, powerful, the epitome of cleanliness and righteousness in Jairus. And then you have this woman who's vulnerable and marginalized and the outcast and the epitome of what they would have considered unclean. 
And these two characters are colliding. Isn't this exciting? And Luke kind of does some devices to kind of bring them together. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years. There's some, there's some devices like that coming together. Jairus want, or Luke wants us to know what combines them ultimately is that they were both desperate for Jesus. Jesus was their only hope for both of them. Uh, Mark tells us in his gospel this woman had exhausted every single thing she could medically. Now, their medical profession wasn't even near where ours is, but they did have doctors. And he tells us that she went broke trying to get this thing fixed. Some of the things, if we dig in with research that they did back then to treat this sort of thing was uh, having people drink wine mixed with rubber. I'm not kidding. Or wine mixed with onions or eating garden crocuses. So Luke tells us she suffered and she suffered. Not only with the treatment, she's gone broke, she's ostracized, she's vulnerable. Here's this woman. Can we see this scene? All right. So the woman, she hears about this Jesus that is powerful. She's even heard these stories that if you touch Jesus, he heals you. If he touches you, he is. And she's literally like, this is it. I got no other options. And she is risking everything right now. Because this unruly mob heading towards this powerful man's house to hopefully heal his daughter. But this is her shot. And I think she's looking for a gap in the crowd. And I really do think, I'm not being hyperbolic, I think she dives for Jesus. Because it says that she touches the hem of his cloak. And that's uh, rabbis and men, they'd wear an outer garment that would go all the way down. And they would have four tassels on the edges. And undoubtedly, Jesus was wearing something like that. And Luke doesn't tell us if she touched the tassel or the cloak. He just tells us she, she touched the hem of his garment. There's no way she's getting down there unless she dives. And there's no way, as a woman who's outcast, she's on the fringes of the mob. So I picture her doing something like the running start and the dive. And she's like, this is it. I don't care. Like, nobody likes me anyway. Like, this is my one hope. I'm diving for Jesus. And she lays out like a wide receiver would for like a pass. And she gets, it, she gets the tip of it. And instantly she's healed, Luke tells us. Instantly. You know if, if you've dealt with any kind of chronic illness and, and by God's grace you've been healed or the medical professionals figure it out, you're the first to know. She knows instantly the bleeding has stopped. Instantly what she's heard about this man is true. And she's delighted, obviously. Dirty, but delighted. And she thinks she's good to go, but she didn't factor in one thing. She just touched a man who pays attention. And so now comes like this. I love this scene. Uh, so back to the, the packed elevator, the mob. They're going along. And Jesus is, the, Jesus is the paramedic on the way to the cardiac arrest. That's what's happening. They're hustling. And this is a powerful man. That's the tension in the story. And Jesus is like, stop, halt. <laughs> and I'm sort of like, Josh is like, What? Everybody's like, what? And then Jesus says, we have to hear the humor here, who touched me? Do you see, there's humor here. It would be you at a sporting event or a mosh pit saying, okay, who touched me? I mean, it'd just be weird, right? Everybody like, that's weird. Everyone's touching you. And this is Peter. Peter's the one disciple who says what everybody else is thinking, but not bold enough to say. And Peter, as essentially, this is my translation of the Greek, his, his answer is, really? Who touched you? Really, Jesus. Everyone's touching you. 
And he uses a phrase uh, that means the Greek word, says the crowd is pressing against him. Uh, it means being jailed. He's like, Jesus, we're boxed in here. We're jailed in here. Like, what do you mean who's touching you? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. Can we just get going to the powerful man's house so you can heal his daughter and our ministry can take off? Jesus uh, then explains to Peter, no, I'm not talking about that kind of touch. Someone touched me in faith. I felt the power go out of me. And that had to be a disorienting thing for these teenage boys. They're, I don't know what that is, Jesus. What do you mean? They're learning. They're early on here. And then I picture uh, Jesus stopping and turning around saying, who touched me loud? He says that out loud, and the crowd parts, and here's the woman in the dust. And she hasn't been seen forever. We have to get that. Yes, he heals her, but he sees her. I mean, can you imagine her life? And the crowd, I think, steps back and is like, oh, she's in our midst? Whoa. It's like how people would have treated uh, early on in the 80s with HIV and AIDS before we knew. It's like that. Oh, am I unclean now? She's been around us. She's been in the mob. Oh, my goodness. But Jesus doesn't care about any of that foolishness. He sees her. He sees her, and she, she raised her. I think Jesus was always twinkling his eye, always laughing and smiling, and I think he animated just love and compassion. And she saw it for the first time in 12 years, and he calls her this really affectionate term, daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. You're right. The dive was worth it. I see you. And then he, I picture it picking, picking her up and hugging her, and people were just like, what? Who is this person? And note, as we're always wrestling with the word faith around here, because I think we have really, really shrunken views of what faith is. Faith is not just in our minds believing. Faith, biblical faith, requires our minds and our hearts and our bodies. She dove for Jesus. That's faith. She believed it, and she dove for Jesus. And Jesus saw it, and and she was made well. All right, so uh, he says, shalom upon you. He's literally brought her back to life. So here we're at the second part of the story, we're this interwoven story. So we're going to continue reading verse 49. We ready? It's a great story. All right. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except for Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus' choice to stop and pay attention was costly. We need to know that from the story. That's what the crowd would have felt. That's what Jairus would have felt. Like, great. Maybe if you wouldn't have stopped for this outcast woman, you could have healed my daughter. It was costly. There was frustration in the crowd. And it's so interesting. Again, Jesus pays attention. Jairus doesn't say anything, but Jesus is likely reading his body language and reading his mind. And he turns to Jairus, who's just been informed his only daughter is now dead. So let's, let's give him grace. And said, Jairus, don't be afraid. Isn't that interesting? Don't be afraid. He felt the fear. 
That's the number one command, as far as I know, in Scripture. 365 times we're told, don't be afraid. Modern Christians could listen to that. And then Jesus, the antidote to fear is faith, and not faith like I'm going to step in front of that bus and trust God to save me. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith. Faith that Jesus would do what he said he would do. He said, Jairus, I told you I'd take care of it. Look at me. Don't be scared. Just believe. So he's pointing back to now the woman in the dust, the outcast, to give an example of faith to the religious leader. Isn't that interesting? Luke's great reversal. Believe like that woman. If you believe like that woman, everything's going to be okay. And so I can kind of see the, the group just kind of shrugging like, I don't know. Like, let's give it a go. Let's try, right, and see what this man can do. Give Jairus credit. Put yourself in his shoes. What would you have done? You've just been informed somebody's died, and Jesus like, they're not going to be dead for long. I mean, he shows faith by following. And so off he goes. Off they go to their house, and they arrive at the scene. Probably typical, nicer first century home, but not big. And outside, they encounter mourners. And this would have been typical in the first century Jewish culture when someone passed. Mourning was a big thing, and mourning should be a thing whenever anyone passes. But they took it to another level. And so not only would the family mourn, but they would hire professional mourners. In fact, to, to, to be uh, at the certain place in society that you should be, you had to have at least two professional mourners per funeral. And so it was an industry. And so uh, there was real mourning going on, and then there was professional mourning, and they were loud, and they're very, they're ripping clothes. It's just that kind of culture. So this is a scene that Jesus and the mob encounter. Chaos, emotion, ripping of clothes. And I love Jesus. He, he goes in, we're told, with Peter, James, and John, kind of his inner circle, and the parents. And as he's passing the whalers, he literally says, zip it. I mean, he, he's probably nicer than that, but that's essentially what he's saying. Would you people be quiet? Which isn't very pastoral. Imagine, they're dead. They're like, who is this guy? What do you mean, be quiet? A little girl's just died. And he's like, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they laughed at him. And I was thinking when I was writing the sermon, what a beautiful portrait of what the kingdom of God is and is becoming. The kingdom of God is essentially Jesus silencing the lips of mourners. And so if you're someone mourning this morning in this room or mourning in the, in, the, in the season to come or we'll all mourn in life, Jesus inevitably again and again and again is going to be making things right until there's no more tears. And so Jesus is given a prequel of kingdom come here. So he tells them to zip it, and then he goes in, and, and the power of the touch, he, he takes her hand almost like as if she were napping. And, uh, and she gets up. And this idea of sleeping, it's, it's, it's part of the connection to, to the resurrection. Uh, Jesus uses the same term with Lazarus. He says, you're just asleep. Paul on Mars Hill uses this term where he's like, all those who hope in Christ, they're not really dead, they're just sleeping. It's the idea of like, no, resurrection is coming for those who put their faith in Jesus. And so that's the connection point. The, 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 the readers would have known that. And so she, she, she stands. Uh, she's been dead. She's dead no longer. Uh, they didn't know that, that Jesus could do that. And he's showing them that even he can supersede death. And then what do you think? If, two weeks ago, if you remember the sermon, uh, I bet you can guess what Jesus did first. He did what? He, he gave her food. Remember the table scenes in Luke? And Jesus describing himself as the son of man who comes eating and drinking. 
It's hard. Remember the Brad Pitt reference? Jesus is like Brad Pitt. You guys have to remember that line, yeah? Brad Pitt's eating in every movie. That's Jesus in every scene in the gospel is eating or hosting. And isn't it? It's just kind of funny Luke throws that in there. He raises this girl from the dead and then makes her an omelet, you know, and feeds her. He's forever the host. So we have this painting, The Raising of Jairus' Daughter, from uh, 1871 by some Russian painter whose name I cannot pronounce. Uh, but it gives you a picture of, like, what that scene might have looked like. And he has this tight little group in there, and he tells them when he ra- raises the girl from the dead, the parents were astonished. And he tells them, shh, because it's not his time yet. He's got a lot more work to do before it goes viral. And can you imagine, I mean, already there were some mob scenes. Can you imagine if word started to spread that Jesus is raising people from the dead? Uh, so how does this story challenge us? How does it, you know, great story, powerful story, funny story, provocative story. What does it mean for us as our community as followers of Jesus? I think one, I, I, Philip Johnson, that article I, I, I referenced, he defines love as committed attending. I think that's true. We can define love in a lot of different ways, granted. But I think at its heart, love is paying attention. And I think that we, we, we know that in our interpersonal relationships. If you're having a meal with somebody, or you're working with somebody, you're friends with somebody, you're married, you're dating, you know when someone's paying attention. You know from their body language and their eyes and the, how they respond. And is, doesn't that just make you feel loved? When someone cares enough to pay attention to who you are, they truly see you. That's love. The opposite's true, too. There's actually a term for this, fubbing. Do you know this term? And have you experienced this, where you're having a meal with somebody, you're talking, and they're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Trust me, that doesn't work well in marriage. So uh, just know that from personal experience. It feels so disrespectful. It's the opposite of paying attention. It's like, you're not worth my time. I'm above you, or I'm busy with this thing. Love is, is paying attention. Uh, Dr. James Cordova says it this way. Attention is the basic food and water of a living and breathing relationship. Attention is how we nurture and feed. Attention is what we need and crave. Without attention, no relationship, no matter how strong, can survive for long. The roots of connection simply shrink and wither. Attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we bless and are blessed. So when Jesus is paying attention, he's a master of paying attention, that's because he is love. God is love. That's what love is. Jesus not only paid attention, he paid attention to the people in his path. There was a study uh, from Purdue University, and they uh, had two women, and they uh, sent them out um, separately, and they would walk down, and the first woman uh, was told to be cold and aloof. Don't make eye contact with anybody. Go the opposite and just act like you don't care about these people at all that you're passing in the street. And then they interviewed people afterward, how they felt. And not particularly about the woman, just kind of getting a sense of how they felt as a human. And then the second woman, they're like, we want you to like be fully present to people as you pass. Make eye contact. Smile. You know, not, don't creep them out, but like show them their love. You know, that kind of deal. And then they interviewed the people after that. And they said it was startling, the difference the people felt after each encounter. The ones who had been kind of snubbed felt lonely and depressed. And studies show that if someone is not seen and they're alienated for a long time like this woman, it can, it can lead to clinical conditions. On the other hand, the people they interviewed that had been seen and smiled at and loved felt good. They were having a good day. Things were going well. They couldn't put their finger on what it was. But we know what it was. 
And I think Jesus did this with everyone in his path. How are, how are you? How am I on paying attention to the people in our path? I think it's a provocative question for Jesus followers. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Full confession, I am, uh, I'm type A. You may know, can sense that about me. It's probably not a big revelation. I do, I think, pretty well um, paying attention to the people I have appointments with. Type A people, you know what I'm saying? So if I have a meal with you or I'm, I'm coaching one of our staff or whatever, hopefully family too, um, hopefully the staff will disagree with this, I think I'm, I'm pretty locked in. I'm not on my phone. I'm focused. I'm listening. I, do, I think I do a pretty job. I think I do a really poor job paying attention to people that I'm not planning to pay attention to. Does that make sense? Uh, I think I do a poor job. And, and I think this was a convicting passage for me that like I'm not supposed to call it just to pay attention to the people I choose to pay attention to. No, pay attention to the people in my path each day because the Holy Spirit is weaving people in that I don't expect and aren't in my calendar because God's so much bigger than me, obviously. And so this woman was an interruption. That's how she would have been perceived. That's how everyone would have seen it. You're on the way to a powerful person's house to heal a girl who's on the brink of death. Hurry. Jesus stops for this woman who wasn't necessarily on the brink of death, who was ostracized and not seen by anybody. She would have been seen as an interruption, and Jesus said, that's okay. Followers of Jesus, we've got to pay attention to that. Uh, Henri Nouwen was a priest and a writer. He's, I, I love his work. Um, this is such a convicting quote, but I love it. He says, my whole life I have been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered that my interruptions were my work. Parents, we probably need to pay attention to that, right? Uh, finally, uh, Jesus paid uh, not only attention to people in his path, but this is super convicting. He paid the greatest attention to the invisible people in his path. Uh, Ralph Ellison wrote the, the book Invisible Man and won the, the National Book Award in 1952. And it was his experience. He coined that phrase as a black man in America feeling invisible. And invisibility, everyone's experienced this. And granted, absolutely some experience invisibility to a far greater degree. It could be skin color, it could be age, it could be socioeconomic factors, it could be the job that, that you do. We've all experienced invisibility or not being seen. Uh, so I want you to think of a time right now, so you can be in the story, that you have felt not seen and invisible. I go back to, uh, to middle school, which middle schoolers love you. It's such a hard time, right, in middle school. And I think I was changing schools a good bit in that moment where you go to a new school and you go in the lunchroom and you're holding your lunch tray and you don't have a table to sit at yet. Anybody else remember these things? Oh my gosh, it's horrible. And you're just hoping for eye contact from one person, just one, anybody, anybody. And everybody's like, you know, no room here. Oh my gosh, it's, I still feel it in my body. This woman for 12 years, some of you in this room, that's your story, that's your experience. No one sees you. you. You feel invisible. And here's the deal. Jesus had every reason to pay more attention to Jairus. He's, he's early on in the ministry. He's kind of building his church, if you will. And here comes Jairus, the most powerful man in, in the city. And if Jesus could do this guy a favor at the beginning of his ministry, then Jairus could go on Jesus' LinkedIn page and be like, he's awesome. And this ministry could take off. And he would get connected with all these people and money would pour in. And it would make every sense for Jesus to prioritize the important person. But he didn't. Here's Luke's great reversal. He flipped it. 
And he paid more attention to the invisible person. I love this line. You just, you, we read right over this when we, in the text. But Luke says, when Jesus said, who touched me? He said, the, the woman knew the gig was up and she had to like say me. Because here's Luke's line. Seeing that she could no longer go unnoticed. Isn't that beautiful? That our Jesus, it just makes everyone feel seen. And we see that in all the Gospels. The, the lepers, the demon-possessed, the tax collectors, the women, the children, the blind, the lame, the Samaritans, the bleeding women. He sees them, he sees them, he sees them. He heals them, but he sees them. And they're no longer invisible in his sight. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, us Christians, we, we do a good job paying attention to the people right in front of us, but maybe not a good job seeing the invisible people. I don't want to put that on you. That's me. But like, as, as one of the leaders of this church, I want us to do a better job with that. I was in the service industry from age 16 to 26. So our family didn't have a ton of money growing up, and I knew if I either had college loans or I was going to work early on. And I did. So I, I, my first job was at Safeway, and then I did a, a short stint at Burger King. And then I, I spent the rest of time waiting tables, but not like nice restaurants. I worked at Ponderosa Steakhouse. Does anybody know what that is? Do you guys have those out here? I think they're out of business, but it, there's reasons for that. Uh, Ponderosa is like, like rubbery steak. It's not even really steak. And then your buffet is like a bunch of cold canned food. And uh, so it's not high dining. And it's, you know, and I was like invisible for about 10 years. You're just in, if you're in the service center here, you know what I'm saying, right? And you're invisible. And, and every once in a while, somebody would notice you, but you're just the dude that brings them more food or whatever. And I'll be really ruthlessly honest here. I'm saddened to say this, but some of the people that I felt most invisible around were followers of Jesus. I can't tell you how many times my tip was a handful of pennies and a track. Please don't do that. <laughs> it doesn't make the gospel very good news to people. So uh, my wife and I, she was in the service industry for a long time. Everywhere we go down, we try to tip as exorbitantly as we can. So in the course, I mean, that's just one example of people in our world that are largely invisible who have borne the brunt of this pandemic. Can we just say that? So are you seeing the person that pumps gas? Are you seeing the person that checks you out at Costco? Are you seeing the person that's not normally seen? Maybe that's you here today. I hope that we see you. Take time, followers of Jesus, to not only see everybody in your path, but if you have to prioritize, prioritize the invisible people. That's what the story tells us. Uh, Gandhi once said that uh, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable, or I would say most invisible, members. You want to know if someone is a mature follower of Jesus? Don't look at how they treat rich and powerful people. That's nothing. See how they treat invisible people. You want to know if a church is Jesus-centered and making disciples? See how they treat the invisible people on a Sunday morning, not the powerful people. Uh, I hope that the, one of the things, by God's grace, we can say about our church as we continue to grow as a body is like, that's the church that no one can go unnoticed. Can I get an amen? amen? Not in a creepy way. Let's not creep people out. But like, you can't go there and not be seen because they're like Jesus in that way. And that's my hope and prayer for myself and, and, and for this church. It's interesting, this story, which is a nice story, but it was it's weirdly really important to the early followers of Jesus. It just, we don't think about this as one of the go-to stories in the gospel, but it's in three gospels. It's a longer story interwoven. It's, it's uh, on the catacomb walls where the Christians would hide out from persecution. We find it depicted. I think there's a picture. It's on the front side of a sarcophagus uh, from, from uh, 8375. Uh, 
Eusebius was a, a second century church father. He, uh, he, he tracked down the tradition of the story and went to the apparent hometown of where this woman came from, found her house, he writes, and out front of her house was a little statue commemorating her healing. And uh, he talked to the locals and they said that her name was Veronica, which means true image, that people matter to God, right? That she, she was in the Imago day, and if they matter to God, they should matter to us. That's why followers of Jesus, we must pay attention to people in our path, especially those who aren't seen. So as we come to the communion table, I come back to this, right? There's this device. Why are the gospel writers weaving these stories together? What is the connection point in these two stories? Well, we have a, 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 a sick woman and a dead girl. The connection points between the two of them is they're both desperate for Jesus, Jesus is their only hope. I would say it this way. Jesus is the only one who can bring dead people back to life. I think that's what the story is telling us. The woman was experiencing a living death. She was cut off from everything. And some of you may be experiencing that in some way this morning. Jesus can bring you back to life. And Jesus is your hope. And then some, some, some people, all, well, all of us, but some of you have recently lost someone in your life and you've, you've experienced the reality of physical death. And it's coming for all of us, by the way. One out of every one person dies. So that's, a, you know, we know that statistic. Jesus is the only one who can transform the doorway of death into the doorway of life. And all we have to do is look to Jesus for life. And some of you this morning have never done that. You've never, like, placed your entire hope. You've never dove for Jesus. And you can do that right now. Just look to Jesus for life. Place your life in his hands. And then, incredibly, the doorway of death becomes the doorway of life. Uh, it's interesting when, when Jesus was going to the home, and he says, you know, she's just sleeping. It's okay. It says the group of mourners. Do you remember what it said? They did what? They laughed at him. And so there's the laughing at Jesus, and then there's diving, laying out for Jesus in the dust. I'm not sure there's a middle ground, to be honest. And I think as followers of Jesus, we need to wrestle with that, those of us who followed for a long time. I think, you know, we didn't laugh at the beginning. We dove. Like, we placed our hope in him. But I think over time, we start to go back into the laughing crowd. I don't know that Jesus can do that. I, I don't know. And as a community here, I want us to be a community that's diving in the dirt for Jesus. Because he's the only one, the only one who can bring dead people back to life. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, uh, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the story of this remarkably courageous woman. Man, she's awesome. And she is absolutely the hero of the story. But Jairus is pretty awesome too, because he had every reason to, to default to his power and his positions and his big book of prayers that didn't end up working. And he was left with you. And he was left with maybe looking like a fool to follow you on the way to his dead girl. He showed faith to God. May we be followers of Jesus like that. God, some of us in this room, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while since we, we dove in the dirt. And we've defaulted to more of a, a laughing posture, to be honest, in how we live our lives. We're not taking it seriously. Convict us, God, right now. Convict us to be people that go hard after you, that you are our only option, that as both characters did, we fall on our knees before you, Jesus. And there's people in the room today that have never looked to you for life. And as we come to the communion table, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will be moving in hearts and that uh, those people will look to you right now and place their life in your hands 
so that one day when death comes, it will be uh, not a doorway to death, but a doorway to life. Because you're the only one that can bring dead people back to life. And we love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,